This podcast explores topics such as post-traumatic stress disorder. If you feel impacted by the discussion, Victoria Police employees can access support by contacting Wellbeing Services on 1300 090 995. Help is available to everyone via Lifeline on 13 11 14 or through Beyond Blue on 1300 22 46 36. I get to the top of the escalator to go down and there's this young lady there and uh, she said to me, um, you're Brendan Bannon? And I said, yes. And she said, you shot my uncle. And I said, oh, did I? And I thought that's one of those moments where they pull out the gunner with the knife and, and get you. Yes. <laughs> and uh, uh, it really startled me. Brendan Bannon was a big copper, and in 1978, while off duty, between ordering a salami sandwich and getting the chance to eat it, he stopped an armed robbery. This is his story. I'm Justin Smith, a journalist working with the Victoria Police, and you're listening to Distinction, recognising the bravery from inside the job and the price that came with it. To help tell Brendan's story, this is Victoria Police veteran, retired Superintendent Peter O'Neill a former member of the Victoria Police Honours and Awards Committee. Well, let me just embarrass him for a second and say Peter O'Neill has done a, so much more uh, than anybody else to make sure that, uh, that police officers are recognised for their gallantry. You should be uh, commended for it, mate. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. And I've, uh, can I just say I've enjoyed every moment of it too. And uh, some things are really obvious about some people's bravery and others have been perhaps put under the carpet and uh, it's lovely to pull back that carpet and expose it and uh, recognise it and, uh, and, and and talk about it. Stop shushing up about it. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Tell me about Brendan Bannon. Ah, Brendan Bannon. Just a quick story before we start talking about Brendan Bannon. I was a young police cadet back in 1973, my first day at Reservoir and here I am working with Brendan Bannon. You know, I could use the word intimidating policeman, but he was a big, strong man and... Uh, he had a fantastic police career. He ended up uh, as a superintendent and uh, he did an awful lot in his service. What do you, what do you make of what happened that day? Oh, uh, absolutely. Bravery, bravery personified. Uh, his senses picked up that something wasn't right. So instead of saying, oh, forget that, let's move on, he goes and investigates and he finds himself in the middle of it. And he wasn't going to take a backward step and it was on for young and old. And uh, I got no doubt they would have got a bigger fright than Brendan. It was Friday night, February 3, 1978. Detective Senior Constable Brendan Bannon of the Armed Offenders Squad is off duty at the food court at the Target Department Store Reservoir. And he hears something over the PA system. There was lots of rumours about why I was actually there. In fact, I, was on, I worked in the Armed Robbery Squad and um, that weekend I was on call so I had my gun with me. And uh, anyway, the bloke that was the manager of the merchandising area was a friend of mine. And I went there to, to wait for him to knock off to go to the Preston Club. And he said, look, I'm tied up. I'm going to be at half an hour or so. So I went to get something to eat, which was a salami sandwich or something. And I heard the PA system. And I heard this woman on the PA system, which was the woman in the robbery. The cashier. She'd press the PA button 
so you could hear everything that was going on. And I thought, that sounds like someone's been robbed, you know. So um, I went to where I thought, well, this, this looks like the door into the place. So I just sort of got me sandwich and um, I just sort of pushed the door open. When I pushed the door open, I immediately got hit by the bloke with the gun who threw me into, or pushed me into this room where this woman was, where the, she'd pressed the PA button. But of course, they had no idea who I was. They just thought that some idiot walked in there eating a damn sandwich and we've captured him, now what do we do with him? So they put me in there. While we're there, they're getting all the money. They've emptied the safe out and then they went out the door and they're standing there having a conversation because they've actually gone the wrong way. And they can't get out because it's been blocked off because there were renovations or something going on. Had they known, they could have just pushed the barrier and it would have fallen over. It was only a, was only a barrier, like don't come past here because there were renovations or something going on. So they thought they had to come back past me and it was when they had to come back past me that I decided, well, better do something about this. So I pulled out my gun and introduced myself and that's when the bullets started flying. Uh, we'd had this exchange of gunfire in a corridor where, where I know where I knew one, one had been shot and I decided at that stage, look, the best thing to do is let them go. And I withdrew and by the, at this stage there'd been, a, you know, they'd fired, I don't know, a dozen or more shell, uh, bullets at us. And I heard the door and I thought they've gone. And I went to the door and they'd actually gone into the next office. And when they heard me come to the door, they've leaned around the door and fired again. Uh, that bullet actually went through my shirt under my arm. Didn't, still, didn't, <laughs> still didn't hit me. So uh, I then immediately, there was a, just a spontaneous reaction. I just leaned around the corner with, the, with my gun, my pistol in my left hand and shot him at almost point blank range, right in the chest. And, and he, he went backwards and slid across the floor on his back. And I immediately went back to the safety of the safe where this lady was and waited there. And, and then I heard the door go again. And then I thought, well, they're definitely gone this time. So I went out to follow them and I knew they're both wounded. Now, I know the second one's wounded because I saw what I did. And uh, I folded them out and then there was this confrontation outside. Because this had gone on for so long, there was an old reservist policeman from Reservoir. He had attacked them uh, as they come out. And he actually was sitting on one of them. And the other one had gone off into the dark, into the car park. So... Um, I went off and followed the other one. He said, he's gone down that way. So I just went down to the corner into the car park where he was and tried to find him. Well, I actually picked him up and followed him and we ended up having another confrontation. And then some more people came, so he decided to take off. He was later found in a bath in, you know, in, uh, down a couple of blocks away by the police dog found him. What Brendan Bannon did that day was extraordinary and brave, and it saw him awarded one of the highest medals for courage. I had the, um, the Governor of Victoria. Um, I lived out at Reservoir at the time, and I had the Governor of Victoria uh, pull up in his um, state car 
the driver knocked on the door and was, I've got the governor out of the car, he'd like to talk to you. <laughs> and I said, oh yeah, well, you know, you doubt whether this was true or not at the time, but I said, oh yeah, don't worry, bring him in. So he came in and he was the um, governor of Victoria, right? He um, sat down and he had a cup of tea and and um, some fruit cake, and then told me that um, I'd been awarded the George Medal. A strange way of doing it, yeah, isn't it? Just roll up to the door and knock and hope that you're home, I guess. Yeah. And uh, and he said that uh, you're not to mention it to anyone, and um, until it appears in the London Gazette. And he gave me a date. That uh, was a week or so uh, to go to that date. And he said and. Um, and he gave me a letter, and uh... he had a little more fruit cake, and then he went. Yeah, it, it is one of those medals that we haven't really get a, got a full understanding of. Is it just the, just the general public? They don't have a full understanding of what the medal really is. No, well, yeah. whether it's the cross or the medal, they don't. They don't. Yeah. yeah. Um, I've had a couple of invitations to um, the garden parties, the, you know, the Queen's garden parties, because the George Medal in England is a lot bigger than it is here. No one knows about it here. Uh, if you're in England, you've got a George Medal, then you know, you know, you're, that's sort of pretty special. There is a, another perk. There's a pension that goes with it, £12.5 shillings a year, which is consumed in administrative costs. <laughs> But after the medals and the pats on the back, the effects of what happened on that Friday in 1978 have echoed through Brendan Bannon's whole life. Peter O'Neill again. You can never ever take it for granted. The impact that those events have on a, on a person, and we speak about it before, you know, sitting outside a police station ready to start their shift and the white knuckles on the steering wheel of their car, building up the courage to go in and start another shift. And it just plays on their mind, it plays, you know, it just impacts on their on their body in a in, in a, a number of ways, whether it be emotionally or physiologically. Uh, it has an impact, and the scars last a long time. Some show it, some don't show it. Some are able to live with it. Some are able to deal with it, whether it's through family or through medication or through just counselling, through talking. Despite that big shell, just despite that big shell. Um, it, it, uh, how, it, how it takes its toll, how it impacts, uh, you will never know until it happens to you. Years ago, I probably thought how lucky I was to get away with it. I always had this um, uh, uh, guilt feeling about getting away with it. The two crooks involved Walters and Lenny Nape, they were both shot pretty badly. I sort of, nothing happened to me. I was a better shot um, than they were. Um, I had them at a disadvantage because I was a, a competition pistol shooter with the pistol club. Why does that make you, why does that make you feel guilty though? I think, I think it was because, um, like the young people today, they go through all these debriefing sessions and they have counselling and they have, you know, people look after their welfare and all that. There's none of that. I went back to the office that night. I was in the arm robbery squad at the time. 
and I went back to the office and um, I think we had a pizza and a couple of beers and my sergeant, Fred Leslie, he's deceased now of course, but he, um, uh, he you know, he said, you're right and I think a couple of officers came in from, from the, the crime department and um, just talked about it a bit and then we all went home and went to bed and come back to work the next day or the Monday morning or whatever it was. I guess most people listening to this would think, well, you're supposed to come out of it without a scratch. Well, That's the way the story is supposed well, to end. Well, you know? I agree. That's your logic. That's what your logic tells you. But that's not quite how I felt about it. But the, apparently the, um, there is this um, guilt complex that you can get about. Uh, yeah, survivor's guilt. Yeah, survivor's yeah. guilt. Yeah, yeah. Something like that. So, yeah. You know, the dust had all settled and everyone was in jail and... You know, the trials were over and whatever, but and I, I, I had a lot of thoughts about it, and I had a, I used to dream about it a bit. And I had this ridiculous dream about uh, I could see bullets coming at me. <laughs> I could remember the size of them; they were like basketballs, and I could actually duck and dodge them. And uh, it was quite weird, and that went on for some time. And um, I had this this feeling that if I had have got shot, I didn't want to get killed or anything, but if, I, if I'd have just got nicked or wounded or something like that, you know, I'd be in the same boat, so that it all sort of even out. <laughs> but um, it wasn't like that at all. Somewhere along the line, we realise that the beer and pizzas, you know, it's not enough, it doesn't wash it away. Something's got to be, you know, there's got to be something else there for people. I think some people do incredible things and they suffer because of it. I think other people can do it and they just, you know, I think everyone's just going to be different about it. Did you wish you were a little bit more like that? A little bit more hardened to it? I, I, I would have thought I would have been in the hardened class about it. I do get a bit emotional about it, but even after all this time, but... Um, and you still think that's the guilt that does that, that pricks at that emotion? I don't, I don't have that feeling anymore, that guilty feeling. Yeah. And I certainly don't have those dreams anymore. Yeah. And I, I did go and um, um, someone organised through the media years ago for me to go and meet um, Len Nape, who was um, one of the crooks. He'd come out of jail and he'd, he was um, doing some really good work in Fitzroy running a halfway house for prisoners. Uh, it was a media thing to go and meet him and, you know, and I did that. And um, How'd you feel about that? Yeah, it was good. I, I did, um, I had an experience, um, I don't know how relevant this is, but I had, had this experience um, we had after the Commonwealth Games, we had a, I arranged a, um, a function to thank everyone for their participation and you know the people that were like venue commanders and things like that. And um, it was at the casino, and I left the casino after everyone had sort of settled into their evening and all the speeches and the formalities were over. Anyway, I decided, oh, you know, I've really had enough. You know, I'm going home. So um, 
it wasn't late. Anyway, I, I left and um, I get to the top of the escalator to go down and there's this young lady there. And uh, she said to me, um, she said, you're Brendan Bannon? And I said, yes. And she said, you shot my uncle. And I said, oh, did I? And I thought that's one of those moments where they pull out the gun or with the knife and, and get you. <laughs> and uh, I, it really startled me. And I said, yeah, yeah. Uh, I said, who was that? She said, Lynn Nape. And I said, all right. And it, by this stage, I've sort of started to, you know, we've had more than a couple of sentences exchanged. So I'm starting to settle down, think, well, she's not going to shoot me or anything. And then she told me that she was a policewoman. And I thought, oh, well, <laughs> you never know. The George Medal was only part of an incredible career. Brendan Bannon was instrumental in creating Victoria Police's Special Operations Group and pioneered the way major events were kept safe in Victoria and Australia. If you've heard Mick Miller talk about it, like it was a knee-jerk uh, response uh, after the Hilton bombing. Yes. And uh, in 1977, and the minister said, what would we do if that happened here, you know? And, and Mick, straight off the cuff, said, I've actually got a, a, a group of 25 or something being trained, you know. So Monday morning started training, <laughs> Monday morning started training 25 to... You know, to keep up with what he'd said, yeah. but it, it was all—it um, was all suck it and see, you know, because no one really knew what they were doing. You know, it's all training, training, training. Bang, and an incident where no one's got time to think about yeah. it, and then it's training, training, training for years, and then bang, it's another incident. And you just hope that the right people are there to the, at the time to take control of it and do something about it. And then I diversified uh, from special operations, um, um, major event planning, intelligence, uh, back to planning. I did, the, I did Charles and Diane's tour when they got married. Uh, they were here for eight or 12 days or something. It was the longest royal tour ever in Victoria. 1983. And then uh, the, the Pope was coming after that. And they said they put together this little planning group and at that time I was a senior sergeant at the SOG and uh, it was so successful they said well the Pope's coming you can stay together and uh, there was about four or six of us you can stay together and do the papal visit so we did that and then we expected to be disbanded and go back to where we come from they said no it's, it's the way to go uh, planning major events um, uh, so we'll have a permanent planning group so I stayed there and then we did all the bicentennial events we did all the major events so the regions didn't have to do their own event, or districts then they were called. They didn't have to plan their own events so we could come in and do it all for them and get the resources of the state rather than trying to deal with the resources of the district so everyone could put in. And then I got um, seconded to um, Sydney to plan the Olympic Games and then I got seconded then to do the uh, Commonwealth Games. And because of my experience with the Olympic Games and, you know, I had a model in my head and I didn't really want to do it, but um, uh, they just said, well, you're doing it anyway. So I ended up um, agreeing to do it on some conditions that I picked my own people, <laughs> that uh, I get my own budget and that I'm autonomous. And they fell for it and uh, never had a problem. <laughs> uh, 
So how many years did you have in? That was a, that was a long time then. Mm. I did nearly 43 years. Well, but I did have the best career, no doubt about it. I had the best time. I, I you know, I, I really enjoyed my work. I, I loved my planning and, um, you know, the, the, for the Olympic Games and the major events and the Commonwealth Games. And I really enjoyed what I did. I had a great time. Brennan Bannon's got a lot to be proud of. He doesn't brag about it. He doesn't make himself the hero. Instead, he thinks about the people around him, including the very people who tried to kill him. This is Chief Commissioner Shane Patton. Chief Commissioner Brendan Bannon is the real copper's cop, isn't he? Uh, he just sort of seems to carry that aura around him. Yeah, he's known, he's known as that larger than life, and, and I think aura is a very good descriptor, uh, very apt. And even as, as uh, tough as he looks and he sort of fits the, fits the part, those nightmares that he had lived through and the, the emotion that we just heard in his voice, you know, the way he, you know, the way that he is still living with this incident just goes to show that, you know, just how much of an impact these things actually have on people. You're right. We hear time and time again from our members who've been involved in critical incidents, these life-threatening incidents of just the impact and how it never leaves them, how it stays with them. Some of them manage to compartmentalise it and move on. Others can never move on from it and they wake up night after night after night and it, it's omnipresent in their life. Because that's what's changed now, hasn't it? You wouldn't look at Brendan Bannon now and say, look, don't worry about him, he's a big tough guy, he'll, he'll be fine. That, that just wouldn't happen now. We wouldn't think of it that way. No, we've, you're spot on. We've matured a lot since then, and that's not being critical of where we were. It's just a natural progression. We now have in place a whole range of support mechanisms. We have our employee assistance programs in both Victoria Police and the Police Association. We have a range of other scenarios that we would provide support uh, nowadays through the police veterans support for those members who have now became veterans who used to be in the job. We have our safety net program where we would record the incident. We'd have supervisors talk with them. We have a peer support program we have a range of other um, scenarios that we've now developed, one of them being uh, working with the Mental Health Division of Austin Health, Psychological Trauma Recovery Service. So uh, we would take a totally different approach uh, to a critical incident like this now in terms of helping the member work through it so that hopefully they didn't carry this this onus, this guilt, this burden, I don't know what you call it, but this presence for the rest of their lives. And the use of the word veteran now seems to be incredibly important because it's not just while they're in that job that they feel supported, but once they've left, giving them that name of a veteran, they, they still feel that they're connected to it. They're able to, be, they're able to be helped. They're not left alone now. That's a really good point. And language, the symbolic use of language can often be very important and I think uh, no better example than this you're a police veteran now you're not not an ex-member you're not not an ex-copper you're a police veteran your service means something your service is recognized you are part of this police family and you're part of it forever and the community recognizes the commitment that you've made the sacrifice you've made so a police veteran is a badge to be worn with pride
you've been listening to Distinction. For more stories of courage inside Victoria Police, please subscribe. If this story has brought something up for you, help is available. Victoria Police employees and their families can access support through wellbeing services on 1300 090 995 or via the Victoria Police Blue Space wellbeing website. Police veterans can also find support through Police Veterans Support Victoria. Help is available to everyone via Lifeline on 13 11 14 or through Beyond Blue on 1300 22 46 36.